0: Thank you, band. Whew. He is more than enough, isn't he? We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there to Mark chapter 12. We've spent the last, uh, this whole year in the Gospel of Mark, looking at what it means to follow Jesus. And so today we're going to wrap that up, and I'm excited because I really believe that today is kind of like a big climactic ending to what we've been talking about this year. And is really uh, just key to what it means to following Jesus. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, it's in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, it's the second gospel. By the way, if you're not familiar with the word gospel and what that means you have the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the word Gospel simply means the announcement of good news. It's the announcement of the uh, incarnation of God, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, uh, His death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means for us in our life. And so it's the announcement of good news that Jesus has come, and He's defeated our enemy, the death, sin, all those great things, and that we will uh, live with Him forever. Uh, in eternity if we accept that sacrifice on the cross for our sins. So that's really what gospel is. And so the four gospels just tell the story of Jesus and what he did here on earth. And so we're going to be in the gospel of Mark. And before we read, I just want us to uh, pray Mark chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 35 is where we're going to be. So let's pray. Father, we just, uh, again, thank you for today. And, again, I just pray that, you, your spirit will just move through this, this place th- this morning. God, as we, as we study your word and as we uh, hear what you're saying, I pray that your spirit will just convict us. Father, I just pray that we will see ourselves for who we are in light of, of you and who you are and what you've done for us, and that we will see our need for Jesus. Father, that's my prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35, we're going to read uh, through the end of the chapter. This is what it says. By the way, this whole chapter has been about Jesus arguing with the religious leaders. The religious leaders have been coming to Jesus, asking him question after question after question. And now it is time for Jesus to ask the question. Jesus is going to turn the tables on them. He's going to ask them a question. This is what he says. It says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said... How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. Verse 38. In his teaching, in, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Probably one of the hardest things that I've learned and will continue learning is that my ministry is either propelled by the hope motivating rest in the sovereignty of God that He is in control or the fear-inducing belief that success would be the result of me controlling everything. Now, let's be honest this morning. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you guys struggle with the idea of trust and control? Raise your hands. All right? If your hand's not up, you're lying, and we'll preach on that next week, okay? All right? I'm going to shoot you straight this morning, okay? Here's the the truth. We struggle with this issue of control because we live in a fallen world. You see, God created us in the beginning in the book of Genesis. God created us to worship Him. He created us in His image so that our identity would come from our Creator and we would rest in knowing that He is sovereign and in control and that we could trust Him. See, God has our best interest in mind. So our, our need, our lack of trust, and our need for control actually started in the garden, in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, what you have is you have Adam and Eve in the garden, and then you have the serpent, which is Satan, and he comes to Eve and Adam, and he uses this, this tactic against them, and he basically is asking the question, can God... Really be trusted. See, Satan was, was playing on the idea that, that God is, is trying to control you, that, he's, that, that God is holding out on you, that, that you could do better for yourself, that you need to be in control. And as a result of their disobedience, as a result of their sin, it entered the world and has turned our hearts away from God, resulting in our need to control and our lack of trust. You see, one of, the, one of sin's terrible consequences is spiritual bondage. We may believe in God or we may not believe in God. But either way, we, we never make Him our greatest hope, good, or love. You see, we try to maintain control of our lives by living for other things, whether it be for money or career or family or fame or romance or power or comfort or social and political causes, or something else. But as a, as, but the result is always a loss of control and a form of slavery. A form of slavery. Now, we see this played out every day in our lives. i I, I got to be honest, I used to despise yard work. Anybody here else love to do yard work or you hate it? You either love it or you hate it, right? I used to despise it, but then a few years ago, did you say you hated it? Did you say you, say you hated it. I, I, I tell you, I, I won't go there. Here's, I'll, I'll, here's the thing, right? I used to hate it, but then something happened a few years ago, and I, I don't know what it was, but something like, I don't know if something just clicked, but then I began to actually enjoy doing yard work. And now Robin's actually got to rein me back in at times because I started talking about shrubs and plants and mulch and doing all these. And she's like, hold up for a second, you know? Let, let me look, Robin's kind of the finance person. She's like, let me look at the budget. Let me see what we got. Because if not, I would go crazy with it. But I've got, I've got a particular about the way that I do things, even when it comes to cutting the grass. Anybody else like that? Right? You've got a certain way that you cut the grass, you know? And so I remember, this has been a year and a half, a couple years ago, I can't remember exactly when, but I remember I was away, I think at the men's retreat two years ago. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to come home, hey, Lynette's laughing, you know this story? Okay. Well, so, so I remember coming home, and I, on the way home, I literally was getting excited about the opportunity to go home and cut the grass. I was looking forward to it. Pulled into the driveway, and the grass had been cut. Robin was doing a very, very sweet, nice thing, and she cut the grass for me. And I didn't, I didn't appreciate it. I didn't appreciate it. I'm actually out there. I'm, she's like, She says I'm out there inspecting the grass. You know? And I'm like, okay, well, here's the deal. That, that's control. That's control. Okay, and maybe for you it's 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 finances, man. You 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 have a certain way that you uh, keep the checkbook. You know, you keep an eye on it, and you're the only one who can do it because if anybody else does it, man, they'll just jack everything up. You know what I mean? And so you've got to be the one who handles the finances. Uh, Maybe you uh, maybe you work for a boss, or maybe you are that boss, where you are micromanaged, or they micromanage you. And they have to be in every little detail. And you feel like you just can't get anything done. Because they believe that the success depends on them. Maybe you are struggling with an issue. And rather than asking for help, you know, we're kind of stubborn sometimes. You feel the need to kind of problem solve on your own. That's control. That's control. Maybe you uh, have a child or a teenager that is struggling with behavior. They're, They're kind of going astray. They're going down a different path. And rather than trusting in God's grace and sovereignty and praying for them and just kind of, you know, leaning into that, we, we, we try to manipulate or guilt them into a different kind of behavior. And so what we do is we kind of try to put our thumb down on them, and we try to control them and manipulate things. I know one of the hardest things for me is, uh, man, I think about my two kids, and I pray every day for their salvation. I pray that God will just capture their hearts at a young age. But The scariest thing for me is knowing that their salvation is out of my control. Like, I hate that. I hate that. Like, I can't just make them believe. And it scares me. It scares me because I want to be in control. And maybe the issue is because of our dirty hearts, because our hearts have been turned away from God, that we would rather have control over redemption. And this is exactly what Jesus is facing here in chapter 12 with the religious leaders of his day. You see, throughout chapter 12 of Mark, the political religious leaders have been drilling Jesus with questions. See, what you have to understand is they had this system set up in place where they could control everybody. And see, Jesus has come onto the scene and he's actually turned the system upside down. He's calling them out on the religious games they play, and they don't like it because he is threatening them. See, the religious leaders were all about rule-keeping. Their idea of following God was about creating their own standard of living because if you do that, if you can create your own standard of living, then you can maintain control of your own life. They were trusting in themselves. For them, it was simply about avoiding sin so they could feel good about themselves while the whole time being void of any relationship with God whatsoever. See, their problem was they had a knowledge of God in their head, but it had not moved to their heart. And by doing this, they could be in control. They used religion to control. And this happens today. One of my favorite movies of all time, it's a classic, right? It's Footloose. Not the new Footloose, right? Not that new one, right? That's garbage. I'm just kidding. You guys seen that movie, Footloose? How, who's, raise your hands if you've seen the movie with Kevin Bacon. If you, did, if you have not seen that movie, man, you've got to go to net Netflix, that bad boy. It's awesome, right? But here's the thing. In that movie, if you remember uh, remember that town, the preacher, right, he tries to control that town through religion. He's, they outlaw dancing. They say dancing is of the devil. You know what I mean? And they try to control the town using religion, right? He didn't trust God and, and God's grace and mercy. And listen, because of our sinful nature, if we're not careful, our natural tendency is to lean towards what the religious leaders did, and that is to create lists of our own. We can create rules and standards that we've bought into the delusion that we have to pretend that we have it all figured out that we have our life together. So we pretend that we aren't really that bad because of the lists that we've created. I don't do this, I don't do that. So what we do is we compare ourselves to other people. And we say, well, I'm not as bad as that person, or I'm not as bad as this person. And you know what that's called? It's called self-righteousness. It's called self-righteousness. Look at all the good things that I'm doing. And that's what the religious leaders were doing. They were playing religion. They were doing that. But Jesus, in our text, says, beware of the scribes. Beware of them who like to walk around in long robes, And like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. See, Jesus is saying, for them, it's all about the show. It was all about the show. They like to pretend. It gives them a sense of control. And see, if we're not pretending, then we're performing. And, And when we perform, we really don't trust in God's acceptance of us through Jesus on the cross and what he did for us on the cross. What we're saying is, is, is what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient for me. So we compensate by trying to earn God's approval. We wear ourselves out with a burden that God never intended for us to carry. We view God as someone who's constantly looking down on us for our failures and weaknesses, right? We, we, we view God as, as somebody who's looking down on us who's just constantly disappointed at us, and we constantly feel the need to perform like, I've got to earn something. Like, I've got to do my part to make up for what is lacking in Jesus or something. And we just sing a song that says, you are more than enough. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? See, that, that, that's, that's the danger of falling in. That's, that's the danger because of our heart and our tendency to lean in that way. And so we live under a weight that we've placed on ourselves because we want control and we don't trust. We just live a life on, on a treadmill trying to gain God's favor, Trying to earn his love. See, on paper, we are Christians. And outwardly, others maybe even recognize Christian like traits. I mean, they're like, man, they're they, they they are awesome, and they do a great job at work, whatever. Maybe our behaviors change a little bit, but in our heart we still struggle with letting go and trusting that God is sovereign and that he is in control. And the reality of this morning is it doesn't matter where you land on this spectrum. Whether you pretend, perform, whether you play religious games or not, the issue still comes down to wanting control and lack of trust. You see, following Jesus is not an individual, create your own philosophy, do whatever you want, nor is it a moralistic, self-righteous, save yourself through moral conformity. So what is following Jesus? I'm glad you asked. It's simple, it's the cross. It's the cross. You see, on the cross, we see the absolute, complete, perfect, moral justice of God being fulfilled completely by the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So we can be completely uh, accepted. We can be completely accepted in spite of all of our flaws, all of our weaknesses, and all of our shortcomings. And that, my friends, is why the gospel is so unique. The gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then, is not an invitation to create your own philosophy or moralism. It is an invitation to real transformation by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's about trusting in Him and giving control over to Him. See, the cross is what sets Christianity above all other religions. I mean, if you took all the religions in the world and you lined them up and you compared every single one of them, no other religion would dare talk about their God Humbling themselves to come and save their people, rather you would see it's about them, by the people trying to work themselves up to their God, to be a God themselves. But Jesus does this. Jesus comes to us, and the religious leaders struggle with Jesus. So, what about us? See, the first thing we see uh, that Jesus does in this passage is he is he makes the claim that he is in fact the Messiah. That he is, in fact, Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came to save the world from their sins. And so in verse 35-37, through Jesus turns and he asks this question. And this question is going to point the religious leaders to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he says, and Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he son? Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting from Psalm 110 in your Old Testament, if you want to write that down, and it's known as the Messianic Psalm. Now, be honest, man, have you ever read this passage before and you've just been, like, scratching your head, confused, like, what's going on here? Anybody ever done that before? Man, you guys are awesome, then. You guys are awesome. You guys know your Bible well, then. That's awesome. Because I'll be honest, man, I've read this passage before, and I thought, what in the world is he talking about here, right? What is he talking about? And so Jesus starts with the premise that everyone in the crowd would have known that day, and that is this, that David, who was the second king of Israel, David is the guy who was known as the man after God's own heart, but he's also famously known for sleeping with Bathsheba, right? He's got that on his resume, and then killing Uriah, He's got that on his resume, right? He probably hates that, but that's, that's on there. And they know that he is the author of this psalm. And the crowd also would have known that David wrote that psalm by, inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, David just didn't slap these words on the page because he was smart. And finally, they would also have known that David was not writing about just any king, but he was writing about the Messiah. Now, what we have to understand this morning is, is that um, the perception in Jesus' day was that a king was going to come and it was going to overthrow Rome. Overthrow Rome. And so their perception in that day was that it was going to be bring political liberation from Rome. So the people of Jesus' day were expecting a descendant of David to come and to be a warrior type king and fight against Rome. So the question that Jesus raises with the crowd is why David calls this messianic figure Lord? Because think about this, logically, if it's the descendant of David, why wouldn't he call him a son? Why would he call him son and Lord? The point Jesus makes is he can only be the son and Lord if this messianic figure is also God's son. You see, their view of the Messiah was that he was just going to be a human, human king, a human king. The only way to explain it is that the Messiah is not only human, but he's also divine. See, Jesus didn't come to fight Rome and put down Israel's enemies, but rather he put down the enemies of sin and death and to destroy evil for the whole human race. Jesus is saying that only I can fulfill this prophecy. Not just David's son, but God's son. And the religious leaders struggle to see this. They struggled to believe this. They struggled to trust because they wanted control. And then then you've got this little section of scripture about the widow's offering. Like when you read this chapter, you think to yourself, what in the world is this doing here? Does this even fit? Why is this here? And so Jesus starts to rant against people who don't care for the poor. How does this fit in? How does this fit in? I mean, the whole chapter is about political religious leaders who were self-righteous and controlling, doubting, and now Jesus turns his attention to a poor widow. Does anybody know why that fits in there? Like, how does that fit in there? Do you want to know? Would you like to know? I'll tell you. You see, the widow's example is in sharp contrast to that of the religious leaders. Jesus begins rebuking people who are more concerned about keeping up appearances And maintaining their self righteousness rather than caring for the poor. And what Jesus is doing here is he's drawing off of the idea or the theme from the Old Testament that God has a special place in his heart for the poor. If you were to take your Bible and you were to read from cover to cover, you couldn't turn more than just two or three pages without constantly seeing God having concern for the poor, the orphan, and the widows. It's just all throughout the Bible. God identifies with the poor. You would notice that when you give to the poor, you give to God. When you insult the poor, you insult God. And God is saying that my heart is so bound up with the needs and the misery of the poor, the widow and the orphan, that if you move against them, God says, I see that as a move against me. If you ignore them, you ignore me. And Jesus is drawing off of that teaching when he makes this condemnation against religious leaders. But Jesus doesn't just draw off that teaching. He actually develops this teaching. And we read this in Matthew 25, if you want to write that down and look at it later. But in Matthew 25, he says this. He's teaching on the final judgment, and everyone is standing before God. And Jesus looks down, and he says, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick in the prison and you did not visit me. And of course, the religious leaders are standing there before Jesus and they're like looking at him thinking, huh? Jesus, uh, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? When, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And Jesus is saying that I am so identified with the poor that when you rejected them, When you took advantage of them for your own gain, when you looked down upon them, you rejected me also. Now now hear me on this. Jesus is not saying that us helping the poor is a way for us to save ourselves because if we believe that, we just fall right back down into the the religious leaders, right? We're, We're creating those lists again. But rather what Jesus is saying is if you have no room in your heart for the poor, You have no room in your heart for God. And those are strong words by Jesus. So Jesus is sitting opposite of the treasury watching people drop in their money and their offering. And the rich come in and they put their money in and finally a poor widow, the poorest people in Jesus' day would have been the widows. And he puts in two small copper coins. It was the smallest coin in circulation in Jesus' day. It would be the equivalent of like our penny or something. And Jesus turns and says... Though her gift was smallest, her sacrifice was the greatest. She said she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything. Now, our English translation, they don't really do this text justice because, and I'm no Greek scholar, okay? I took a couple years of Greek in school, but I, I, I don't, don't ask me. Uh, okay, but, but I do know this. I, do know, I, I know that the Greek text actually says that she gave her whole life away. Her whole body. What's Jesus saying? He says, when the rich give, we, get out, we give out of our margins. And so, so I'm just going to be honest, man. When I put my offering in today, I'm still going to leave here, man, go to Chipotle, buy a, a steak burrito, a Scarf Fat Baby Down. Right? And, hey, it ain't going to affect me any. When I give my offering in today, I'm still going to go out and I'm still going to be able to go out and provide uh, clothes for my kids and get shoes for them. You see, I, I, it's not going to affect me that much. It's not going to affect me. But you see, the rich we give out of our margins, we're still in control, right? But this widow, she gave up what little control of her life she had left. And when we give, we can give without losing control over anything in our life. So the widow just didn't give her money. She gave her life because she lost control and trusted. So why is Jesus telling this? Because the religious leaders had the commands in their head but they failed to apply the gospel to their heart. You see, our problem is not so much intellectual belief. Like, we know the Bible. We know the commands. But our problem is a belief in the heart that we're afraid of losing control. And Jesus' point is that the religious leaders don't have what this poor widow had. She was willing to lose control and self and entrust God. She was willing to lose control. She gave her life away. She gave her life away and one of the reasons we don't connect with God is because we are afraid of losing control and that's the case then what are we going to do I mean what's what's the solution here how do we overcome this issue should we just try harder think that would work think that would work just try harder are you guys awake this morning Listen, I am always, 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 always um, going to point you to Jesus, okay? And that's the answer. That's the answer. Um, let's look at Jesus. When you look back in Scripture, you see God identifying with the poor, but only if you come to Jesus, if you strip everything away, if you look in the Gospels and you look at Jesus' life, when you come to Jesus, will you really know how radically God identified with the poor. Listen, in the New Testament, God literally identified with the poor because when Jesus Christ was born, He was born a poor man. He was born in a manger. He was born to poor parents. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Jesus was homeless. But on the cross... Jesus was stripped absolutely naked. Jesus became absolutely penniless. Only Christianity over all other religions on earth would dare say that God became poor, that he became exploited on the cross and he was devoured. That He was devoured. Jesus became weak. Jesus lost control for us. When did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or in prison? Jesus says it was on the cross. I was stripped naked. I said I thirst. And I was in prison. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus who deserved justice got condemnation so that we who deserve condemnation could receive justice. That's good news. Jesus paid our penalty so that we could be saved by faith. And now we see that the widow is simply pointing us to Jesus. As wonderful as she was, she was just figuratively giving her life away. But when David's son became David's Lord, he literally gave his life away. He gave his life away. He was devoured and he lost control for you and me. See, Jesus is not saying, lose your life and trust some remote God who is distant, but rather I want you to lose control and trust God who came to earth and lost control for you. Right? That's what's so beautiful about God and Jesus. No other religion says anything like that. And you see, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, if we see Jesus giving his life away, if we see Jesus losing control for you, if we allow it to take root in our hearts, it will melt our hearts, and the Holy Spirit will give you the power to lose control and trust Jesus. Amen? On June 30th, 1859, a guy by the name of Blondin, a famous aerial French tightrope walker, stretched a tightrope across the Niagara Falls and walked across it, and there was a huge crowd. Like 10,000 people showed up. People were ecstatic. I mean, they were excited. They could not believe what they were seeing. And Blondin and his manager, Harry, said, Man, this is awesome. Let's promise him a stunt next week. Let's, let's just make this thing huge. Let's see how far we can go with this thing, right? And so they did a stunt next week. I think he like carried like a bag over his head or something like that, walked across that thing, and people were going crazy. And so each week they just kept getting more stunts and more stunts. I think one week they, uh, uh, I think he walked across on or rode a bike across. But the best by far, the best by far, was he took a wheelbarrow, built a fire in it. You, you familiar with this story? He took, built a fire in it, walked it across the tightrope, set it in the middle, and actually cooked the omelet on the tightrope, tightro-. isn't that awesome? Like, I would love to see that. And people were going crazy. And so it was nearing the end of the summer, and Blondin was like, you know, we've got to do something just really, really big. And Blondin said, I know what we can do. Let's advertise that next, next week, I want to carry somebody on my back on the tightrope. So that way, not only will my life be at stake, but two lives will be in stake. So what they did is they put an ad in the paper and said $1,000 to any man who was willing to be recruited to be on the back of London as he walked across Niagara Falls. You can imagine for $1,000, a lot of people showed up because that was a lot of money back in 1859. And So a lot of people showed up. He takes them up to the point. He walks across the tightrope to show them that he could do it. He actually carried a 200-pound sack to show them that he had no problem. He, he went across the tightrope. He did some somersaults. He did all kinds of things. And then he comes back over, and he walks down the line of people, and he asks... Do you believe that I can carry you across this tightrope? And without hesitation, each one said, Yes. Yes, you could carry me across this tightrope. Then he went down the line and he asked each one, Will you let me carry you on the rope across the Niagara Falls? And each one said, Absolutely not. Not on your life. Every one of them said no. No one would do it. You see, the problem isn't that we don't believe in God. The problem is, do we believe we can trust him? Are we willing to give our life? So what happened was, they had advertised this for a week, and, and they had to do something, and so Blondin turned to his manager, Harry, and said, listen, buddy, you've got to do this. Now, Harry was terrified. He was terrified, but he did it. And halfway across, Blondin was starting to sway a little bit. And Harry, the manager, would try and sway back the other way. I mean, you can imagine the intensity. And it was at that point that Blondin stopped and he yelled to his partner as loud as he could over the raging waters of the Niagara Falls. He said, "'Harry, until I clear this place, "'you must become part of me, mind, body, and soul. "'If I sway, you must rest in me completely "'and sway with me completely.'" Don't try and do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go down to our death. Blondin said, if you try to save your life, you will lose your life. And Jesus says the same thing to us. Jesus is telling us that we must rest completely in him. That we must trust in him completely. Completely. That we must just rest in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that what he did for us on the cross is more than enough. That it's sufficient. That I don't have to earn my acceptance. We've got to rest in that and that's what Jesus is asking us to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Stories like this that just point us to our need for you, God. We live in a fallen a broken world. And God, we may not understand that every day. We may not think about that every day. But, God, our natural tendency is to lean towards control and lack of trust. Father, I pray this morning that you would just help us to see that, to recognize that in our own life. But, God, I pray that your spirit would just convict us And then we would see our need to just let go and rest in the gospel, to rest in Jesus. Thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. It's his name I pray. Amen.